I feel not many people truly know what addicts go through every day in jail and really should know the truth to be able to make more informed opinions. I've had terrible opiate plus benzo and alcohol withdrawals in jail multiple times now. Please don't judge me. But yes, I can very much confirm, not fun. Actually, I really believe it might even classify as pure torture. The cops didn't care I had withdrawals or seizures, and literally just left me there for dead. They took three days to even get me an Advil, refused to allow me to take my methadone or Xanax prescription, and the phones would never work. After nearly three days, multiple seizures, the most intense withdrawal symptoms I have ever experienced, and being thrown into complete manic psychosis, they finally offered for me to go to their janky-ass nurse. The nurse says she can't do much. She can give Advil, but will have to send me to the hospital to get more help, and made sure to inform me that this would extend my time in jail by maybe two plus days. So, being the desperate addict I am, and wanting to get out ASAP, and also knowing I only have like maybe one and a half days left in there, I stupidly reject. The bright fluorescent lights are constantly in your eyes in the cell. They never dim or go out. The cell is freezing cold. The mattress pad is so incredibly thin that you can feel all the metal bars right through it, which is not fun when you have a broken coccyx. They don't give you a pillow, and the one scratchy blanket they gave me felt like it was seriously made out of human hair. And no joke, it smelled like literal fish pussy. There must have been at least 10 different girls who used the blanket to masturbate on it before they finally gave it to me, definitely unwashed. I simply could not control my gag reflex and was choking up gagging every 10 seconds, for days, just from the pure stench of this blanket. They refused to replace it. I've honestly never experienced anything quite like it. I just couldn't get a hold of my breath and felt like I was choking. I was forced to choose between using the blanket as a pillow or as a blanket, either be freezing cold or have blood constantly rushing to my head causing the worst migraine of my life. It hurt so damn bad to put my head down flat, so I was forced to use it as a pillow. I tried folding up the blanket and balling it up underneath the thin mattress pad by the head area to create a slight bulge for my head, but the smell persisted, a very putrid smell. But seriously, you never realize how these little things like lights, smells, temperature, and a simple pillow can seriously affect your mental health. I reached literal insanity. I could not stop hallucinating and having seizures every few hours. I was in complete isolation, with absolutely nothing for stimulation or to keep my mind entertained from the torture I was facing. Just left completely alone with the darkest thoughts I have ever experienced. They also would not allow me to keep my hair scrunchies and didn't provide a hairbrush, only a very mini, literal Barbie-sized plastic comb that my tangled hair snapped in half during the first brush stroke. So my greasy-ass hair was in a big bird's nest tightly matted to the back of my head. I had to cut it after getting out. Not being able to tie your hair out of your face during withdrawals is honestly its own form of hell. The cell at the jailhouse is maybe 8 by 8 feet maybe smaller. There's four beds, but I was locked inside all alone for three days straight, complete isolation. Right as I finally got my first shut-eye after two miserable days, it had maybe been 30 minutes or less of a nice deep sleep. The guards started to bang on all the doors down the hall to force me and all the other women into a communal area for a few hours. Just a big, cold, open concrete room with beds and showers. 
I was finally offered my first shower after three days. It was such cold water and I was so sick that I just skipped out on it. The phones also never worked for me and nobody would help us figure it out. I couldn't even make a phone call to reach out for help. The worst of the worst times was when it was time to go to court. It was about 72 hours in at this point and I'm shitting my fucking pants, constantly throwing up and can hardly even move my body and I'm just wondering how my stupid ass even got myself into this situation. By being a victim to an abusive home life, mom kicking me out at 16, a victim to the opioid epidemic and homelessness, for being in the wrong place at the wrong time, being wrongly searched, and corrupt police. Most of all, just making a lot of really stupid decisions that I regret very much. I had a quarter gram of some crappy dusty ass dope on me, just 19 years old and genuinely thinking how the fuck did I mess my life up so bad already and what did I do to deserve this torture? So yes, court day. I went into court looking like an absolutely insane person. I finally was able to get myself up to go on day 4. I absolutely could not muster the energy to get up on day 3 so they extended my time and you definitely don't want to miss it because this could be your chance to get out. So it doesn't matter how bad withdrawals are, or if you just had a seizure and don't even know what's going on, you get your ass up and go. I was abruptly woken up again to banging on the doors, 4am on the dot. It seemed like the few times I was finally able to just close my eyes, the guards were there to violently wake me up. Also, your perception of time your entire stay is completely fucked because there's not one window or clock, they give you no outside time. You can only hope the guard that you see maybe once every 7 plus hours will tell you what time or day it is when you ask. They usually are assholes and won't though, only furthering my dissociation. 4am, day 4. They walk all of us, probably 50 plus very rowdy ass ladies down through the jailhouse to return to the blankets and handcuff us all together to stand in line for an hour to wait for the bus. I thank god that smelly blanket is out of my possession. Once the bus came, we remained tightly handcuffed the entire ride, which made me freak out from claustrophobia. The cuffs were cutting into my damn wrists, and the guards would not loosen it for me. It's 5am now, and about 80% of the women were all screaming their heads off on this bus. Can't help but think I don't belong here. This can't be my life. Also, I have to shit and puke simultaneously really bad, and there's nowhere to go for another hour. I either shit my pants or shit my pants. Yup, I shit my pants. That happened. We finally arrive at the courthouse. We walk by probably a hundred empty cells before arriving at the very end of the hallway, to the cell closest to the courtroom entrance. This is when things get really terrible. It's probably about 5.30 in the morning at this point. I know I am in for a long, excruciating day here and just hoping to god I don't shit my fucking pants again or barf in front of the judge. These cells at the courthouse are hardly any bigger than the ones back at the jailhouse, the room that felt cramped with just myself inside, but these cells don't have beds, just a very freezing cold concrete room with one toilet, no privacy wall, and a very cold and narrow as fuck metal bench that goes along the back wall. It's nearly impossible to even sit down on it because it causes a shooting back and knee pain from the energy it takes to even hold yourself up on the damn thing. And I had a broken tailbone, so after about 5 minutes of sitting on it, it starts feeling just like that exercise where you sit in an invisible chair against the wall. 
the pig shoved and crushed all the women from our bus into one single cell. I was absolutely flabbergasted and horrified in a state of shock and panic, hoping to God this wouldn't be the case for the entire day. Well, it was. For the next 12 hours, we sat crushed together, literal elbow to elbow, back to back, with knees tucked in and rows on the floor, no space to even put your legs out. There was space for about two smaller girls to lay down at once. We tried to keep rotating girls throughout the day to let everyone get time to lay down or spread your legs out, or to sit on the bench if they wanted. I refused to take that bench seat after two goes. My body felt like a noodle, and I had no energy left to use to sit on this piece of shit bench. It was fine though because some girls preferred the shitty bench over being crushed on the floor with strangers. But some girls were so desperate they put their heads directly under the toilet in order to lay down in fetal position because their bodies were so tired and cramped up. And yes, this is all while I'm going through intense withdrawals, having diarrhea and vomiting all day long. Yes, I had to diarrhea and vomit and cry like a damn baby in front of 40 plus women all day long. Oh, I also had to clean myself up from shitting myself on the bus earlier in front of everyone, with one-ply toilet paper and dribbling sink water that barely works. The pigs gave me a bag to trash my pants, and some thin-ass see-through pants made of some weird paper material. I'm fairly certain my entire ass crack showed right through them, and they felt like they were going to rip with every movement. I felt so fucking bad I smelled like literal shit, therefore making the small cramped cells smell like shit. I forced 40 plus strangers to endure the toxic smells I emitted. Pretty sure even my pores gave off sweat and shit stink at this point. I just couldn't understand why these pigs were so cruel to shove us into one tiny cell like this and treat us so inhumanely when there were a hundred empty cells right there. It was some kind of cruel sick game to them. This was a ginormous group of women with one single toilet for 12 hours. We were all constantly taking turns on the toilet all day long and would go through an entire roll of paper every 30 minutes. Instead of the guards giving us some backup toilet paper, they would instead take an hour plus just to replenish one single roll to us at a time. Since it was that shitty thin one-ply paper, it kept going extremely fast. Many women were on their periods and the pigs also refused to replenish sanitary napkins in a timely manner for them. These girls were going through 10 plus pads every hour or so and would take an entire another hour for these assholes just to replenish more for them. On top of that, there was no waste bin. They wouldn't even give us a bag, so they all had to just wrap their pads up and throw them in one corner, about five inches away from those desperate girls' faces who were laying under the toilet. Yup, you really can't make this stuff up. This room was undoubtedly filled way above maximum capacity. We felt like we were basically on the train to Auschwitz for Christ's sakes. We were honestly surprised we didn't all end up naked with shaved heads. Sorry for bad crude humor, but it genuinely was indescribably terrible. After about two hours into the morning, that did not stop the pigs from throwing in one more woman. Oh yes, it was an elderly woman in a clunky ass wheelchair. I will never forget all the girls going off on the pigs and asking what the fuck was their issue, cramming us in like fucking farm animals. 
I will never forget everyone's face of, how the fuck are we going to sit like this for 12 hours with one toilet and no toilet paper or pads, no water, no legroom, no fucking fresh air to breathe, etc. Being forced to make space that we didn't even have for this handicapped woman. She took up the space that almost four girls had previously been crammed into. There was now only space for two people to stretch their legs out at a time, not lay down, just be able to sit and stretch their legs out straight, and possibly could lay their head on another girl's lap if she allowed it. It was torture. I will say though, this woman was extremely awesome and allowed me and the other girls to rotate her wheelchair around to sit and relax for a bit. It was like heaven sitting in the chair. I didn't even care about the fact that she didn't even really need the damn thing. I had broken my tailbone and had severe coccyx pain, so this day was extremely excruciating for me and many other girls, not being able to move or stretch much. I will also say, lots of women were very rowdy in the morning. My head was piercing so bad, I was wondering what the hell was wrong with them. But through the day together, I realized these were all such caring, beautiful, and strong women. A good amount of them really fucking helped me get through that day and were surprisingly understanding of my situation. Many had similar addiction issues and the majority were also there for some dumb petty charge. So on top of all this, they only brought food in once throughout the entire day. It was two pieces of wheat bread, one slice of bologna, and no condiments. It came with one tiny orange and a tiny box of orange juice made for a toddler. And guess who is allergic to citrus? They refused to give us water or other food all day and would not help any of the people with food restrictions. They said we can just drink from the sink. The sink literally just dribbled a tiny stream of water, also located above the toilet. I genuinely feel they handpicked this room out for us to suffer in because we had clearly walked by many other empty and even a few bigger cells than what they placed us in. Some very few girls said they were given breakfast at 3.30 a.m., but I did not happen to be one of those girls. In fact, I barely ate one meal for the last four days because I was so sick. Over 50% of the room said they hadn't received breakfast and were starving as fuck. Around 4 p.m., they hadn't given us our sandwich yet. Not like I would have probably had the appetite for breakfast or been happy about being woken up at 3.30 a.m. since I had literally probably just fallen into an actual deep sleep for the first time during my entire stay. But I would have definitely taken apple juice or an apple at that point because I had already not eaten much of anything for days. Throughout the day, the girls were called one after the other to go see the judge, allowing us short times to have very slightly more leg space. I was waiting for my name to be called all day long from 5.30 in the morning. It was finally approaching 6 p.m. and I was still not hearing my name called. Neither were the three friends I made. I started to break down and went into a full-blown panic thinking about how we would be dragged back to the jailhouse and then back here to court again tomorrow. I did not have any energy whatsoever and could barely move even my body at this point or help myself from shitting my fucking pants. So the thought of going through the same bullshit for another 24 hours was absolutely unbearable to me. I just wept so fucking hard. To my huge surprise, I was the very last girl to be called out to see the judge for the day. The three closest friends I had made sadly never got to see the judge and ended up having to be taken back to jail and repeating the process the next day. While walking out to the judge, I couldn't help but just weep for them. They were also all there for some stupid small petty shit and had helped me so much throughout the day and took good care of me. 
I gave them my number and actually ended up helping them once they were out the next evening. I'll never forget those girls. They were the real MVPs. I cannot lie though, it felt so good to be able to walk and move my legs and breathe fresh air outside that room after being trapped and suffocating in diarrhea, vomit, and period stink all day long. I was a fucking wreck and was just praying to God I'd be able to get released from there. I ended up getting one of the coolest public defenders ever who helped me so much and actually really cared. I was given a court date and given my release forms, but after seeing the judge, I sadly had to go back into that godforsaken cell. Even though the courtroom had already packed up to leave, the pigs made us sit and rot in the cell for another hour. We could hear the cops laughing and joking in the halls all day long, and even louder laughing during the last hour. A cruel sick fucking joke, I swear. I was finally released directly from the courthouse in downtown. On my way out, the cops laughed in our faces and kept saying they'll see us again soon. I don't think any of them had even one ounce of empathy. These were some of the most cold-hearted people I had ever met in my entire life. The cops had towed my car at arrest, had stole the measly $100 in cash I had on me, never got that back. My debit cards were all in a separate wallet in my car, and my phone was completely dead because they wouldn't allow me to turn it off upon arrest. They also made it next to impossible to get my clothes and ID back. They brought me out from over 40 minutes away from where I stayed, and I was now stranded in downtown. I was still in the middle of terrible withdrawals, and there was not one place for miles that had a restroom to use. On top of this all, I looked batshit fucking crazy. I smelled like lingering diarrhea and sour withdrawal sweats, was wearing see-through paper prison pants with my ass crack showing, ruffling around with every step I took, and stupid-ass flip-flops that were falling apart and had dirty, greasy-ass hair that was tightly matted in a bird's nest to the back of my head. They confiscated and threw away my scrunchies, so I couldn't even get my hair out of my face even after getting released, which was the one thing I was looking forward to so much, and of course, they threw my good hair ties away. I was just a huge stinky ass mess, now stranded and roaming the streets of downtown looking like a fucking zombie, vomiting, and trying so fucking hard not to shit myself. I asked probably 25 plus people if I could borrow their phone for just a moment, or if I could log into my Uber to order a ride. After roaming around for nearly an hour and being repeatedly rejected, understandably, I finally, by the grace of fucking God, found someone at a bus stop and pathetically begged him to please let me use his phone for just a moment to order a ride on my Uber account. He was an absolute angel for me that day. He let me use the phone and I ordered the ride. He had to hop on the bus and leave, so I was left to just hope the Uber would find me. It was honestly a fucking miracle. The Uber found me. I made it. I finally felt like I could breathe and lean back for a moment. I just started sobbing my eyes out uncontrollably during the entire 45 minute ride to the tow yard. It was so hard not to poop myself in this poor man's car. I was positive I had already stunk it up enough by just sitting there. I was so overwhelmed. The entire experience of withdrawal in jail is extremely PTSD inducing and has definitely fucked me up for life. Even years later, I still have Vietnam style flashbacks and horrible nightmares that haunt me. I can't even begin to describe the condition they left my car in. It was just absolutely heart-wrenching, a punch to my gut. Everything I owned was very neatly folded away in a couple bags in my trunk 
pillows and blankets also folded up. I just spent over $100 on laundry the previous day to finally clean all my clothes and sheets after living with dirty clothes for fucking months. They dumped each bag one by one into the dirty pus shot floor of Hollywood, threw my pillows, unfolded and threw all my blankets, dumped all my makeup out, then went on to dump the trash bag and recyclable bag I had in the back seat on top of all my clothes and belongings. I just watched them ravage through my car like maniacs while cuffed in the cop car, completely helpless and unable to do shit. They drove me off to the station before I could see what they were going to do with all my belongings. When I went to pick up my car from the tow, I found my car had all my belongings thrown all over the entire interior in a ridiculously gigantic pileup to the literal roof of my car, mixed in with trash and recyclables and lots of makeup they broke. Everything was all oil stained and dirty from the road. They also tore out lots of the lining and plastic pieces from the interior. They also stole my favorite $300 jacket that was sitting in my front seat. I was homeless living out of my car, and this was just completely devastating for me. This was everything I had left to call my own in this stupid fucking world, and they just spit on everything, destroyed everything. I honestly couldn't believe it, all for a quarter gram of a dusty fucking dope that I was honest and upfront with them about from the moment they asked if I had anything in the vehicle. I just still can't believe monsters like this actually exist. Disclaimer, this story is rather old and I haven't used garbage in since this experience, so if you use it, your experience may be entirely different. Unlike the Freon one I posted before, this is my own experience. Sit back and enjoy. This is by far the most nonsensical yet interesting and craziest drug trip I have ever had. I had dabbled in hallucinogens before this, mainly psychedelics like 2CB, DMT, psilocybin mushrooms, and LSD, and I took a recreational DPH dose once and had tactile hallucinations where cockroaches were crawling inside of me under my skin and in my mouth. Yeah, never doing that again. I've also used other hallucinogens like ketamine, DOM, and PCP, only twice. So much crazy shit, let me tell you. Elves, talking machines, rainbow people, aliens, talking to people that aren't there, taking drugs that don't actually exist while tripping, feelings of intense physical and cognitive euphoria that are paradoxically mixed with horrifying visuals and spiritual introspections. But I have never had an experience as weird as this one. For those of you who don't know, Carbogen is a gaseous mixture consisting of 50-50, 90-10, or 70-30 carbon dioxide and oxygen, the second number being oxygen. Normally, inhaling pure carbon dioxide can straight up kill you, but when combined with oxygen, thereby eliminating the risk of death by a lack of oxygen, it's known to cause truly bizarre hallucinogenic and psychological effects. Not so much a high in the traditional sense, but rather an altered state of consciousness unlocked by your brain thinking you are dying. It all started when I was 16 years old on a clear day, when a friend of mine hit me up telling me he had bought a full tank of carbogen from a local vendor who was also a chemist for 30 years, for only $150. His particular mixture consisted of 70-30 carbon dioxide and oxygen. Now, I had known the guy and had bought other drugs from him before with nothing but positive results, so I trusted him. 
At the time, I had no idea what Carbogen was, so I asked him. He told me it was an anxiogenic slash dissociative mixture of oxygen and carbon dioxide that can cause psychedelic and even dissociative effects when inhaled directly from a mask, including hallucinations and other visuals that are either psychedelic in nature, or fully solid like a deliriant, or both. He then told me that people have had some pretty epic experiences with Carbogen after inhaling a large amount from a bag or a mask in one sitting. I was always eager to try a new drug, so I immediately ran over to my friend's house, the friend who bought the tank, we'll call him B, he was 18 years old. Four of my other friends were there, D, 17, C, 16, E, 23, and F, 20. We are a tightly knit group of young friends, so I felt comfortable trying an unfamiliar drug with them. I still talk to all of these people to this day. We would smoke together and occasionally snort some lines and dabble in other drugs, but this was an entirely new substance to us, and it was apparently non-addictive and non-toxic, which was definitely a plus. It was also an inhalant. The only other person I knew other than myself was a friend who used to huff Freon back in 04, but quit after a bad trip. He was E. I'd used Duster, but stopped after the first use because it gave me the worst headache known to the universe with the short-lived high that wasn't anything to write home about. Anyway, I opted to take the first hit, so B handed me the mask and told me to enjoy it. I took three breaths and immediately felt a rush of adrenaline. I was seeing minor visuals, mainly auras like what you see during the peak or onset of a migraine. I took five more hard hits, and this is when things got interesting. Everything around me seemed to slow down, like the frame rate of my eyes was dropping. I took two more hits and lost my balance. I fell backwards in slow motion, but I was unable to feel anything. Not just pain, but any physical sensation. This was the weirdest feeling ever, and I get chills down my spine thinking about the whole trip, even to this day. I promptly got back up and my friends were looking at me. They were asking me questions, but I could barely hear anything. Everything was muffled like they were trying to talk to me through a thick window. The sound I was surrounded with sounded like a large fan blowing. My friends were asking me questions like, are you there, hello, and can you hear us? Still seeing auras and stars, I turned around and on both sides of each wall, on the left and right sides, in the room, there were dancing figures in business suits. Their faces were completely black. I walked into the hallway leading to the back door of the house and there was another dancing figure in front of the door, several in the kitchen on each side of the wall as well as in the bedroom, four in total, one on each side of the walls and one right underneath the fan. If I had to guess, I would say I was walking at approximately 1 to 2.5 kilometers per hour, or 0.6 to 1.5 miles per hour, but I felt like I was moving at about 100 kilometers per hour. This shit was insane. I walked back into the living room. This next part is the peak of the experience, and thus the hardest to explain, but I will try my best. While staring off, everything went black. I was floating in an unknown place with orbs of light flying everywhere around me. Deeper and deeper I drifted, then suddenly, a voice came on an intercom and said, Warning, your life will repeat in 10, 9, whoosh. For whatever reason, I thought that it was one of the dancing figures talking me through the telephone. My life started to play from the beginning to end. I remembered things from my childhood. I saw visions of my family. 
I remembered that all the times I had been a bad child, a good child, the rewards I received in my sports games, my birth, and when I got my first girlfriend. If I had to guess, I would theorize that this was my life flashing as my brain thought I was on the verge of death because of the carbon dioxide quantities and reacted accordingly. My hearing became metallic sounding and echoing. Suddenly, I was sure that I had died. It's strange how it worked. It was like my inner dialogue all of a sudden yelled, Oh my god, you're dead. You've died. But the thought seemed beyond my control, almost as if it came from the drug rather than me. There's no way to describe this feeling. It was like I was dead and alive at the same time. I still don't know. Words can't do it justice. I then noticed small, independently colored dots in my field of vision, the movements of which corresponded to the rate and volume of the clicking and tingling sensation I felt when the dots seemed to touch me. The clicking is now turning into a seemingly patternized chant of cackling. I then had a vision of myself in the hospital room when I was getting my broken arm fixed after I suffered a nasty fall while skating at the skate park. There were butterflies flying around. I then had a vision of myself sitting on my porch talking to my older sister a few months before she left for college. There were also butterflies flying around, and the cars that drove by looked blocky and low definition. Then, I felt something that was quite scary, and although I remember telling myself that it was completely irrational to be scared of it, I couldn't shake the feeling. It was the feeling that behind me, there was a huge swirling vortex or black hole that was coming closer and closer, about to suck me in. I looked behind me and saw just that, a black hole that was sucking everything and everyone in, right where the door would normally be. I tried to escape, but couldn't. I was being sucked into this portal of absolute nothingness. I continued to fall through this dark abyss of nothingness, until... Boom. I opened my eyes, and my hands were in front of my face. Everything was red, my vision was extremely sharp, and there was this loud ringing like a dead dial tone in my head. I was lying on the floor, about a meter from my friends, and they just stared at me, confused. The ringing sound was slowly wearing off, but the other effects were still in action. I was slightly delirious and had a very mild headache. The dial tone faded out. Everything became clear. I took a deep breath and realized that I was still here. I gathered myself up and got to my feet. Although my knees were weak, I walked over to the couch and looked at my friends. I looked at Dee and said, Holy shit, that was a heroic dose if I have ever taken one. I then told them I wanted to take a break. They were good friends and understood. My friend C noticed unease and told me to relax. I was uncomfortable and a little paranoid for a while, but really, that was it. My friend C didn't have the same experience, he just said he was in an unusually paranoid state for a few minutes. B then took two huffs, D took three, E took one, and F took three. The only other time I've ever had an experience that was even remotely similar to this was when I took Special K. Even though it was an intramuscular injection with bioavailability of 93-95%, to 95%, the experience with that pales in comparison in regards to its hallucinogenic effects, although ketamine was more euphoric. That, along with its relatively low toxicity, makes ketamine my dissociative of choice, and I still do it occasionally to this day. 
I did have a trip on PCP a year after this story that had similar solid visuals, but it didn't elicit the same mental state and feelings that Carbogen did, so that also pales into comparison. About an hour later, I felt better and grabbed a blunt. I told them the whole experience. They were amazed, and Dee said that he saw minor visuals, but didn't see anything that crazy. I never would have thought that such an intense experience could be produced by something as simple as combining oxygen with carbon dioxide. It's one thing to simply have an intense trip, but to have that be your first impression of this drug, well, it really sets your bar high. I have no idea how long the trip lasted, but I don't think it was any more than three minutes. Jesus H. Christ, this shit is insane. I've always, even as a preteen, had an underlying tide of curiousness that rises and falls in regards to spirituality and wondering why we are really here as a species. I was raised as a Pentecostal Christian and I always remember feeling like this is bullshit during children's church and consequently even as a teenager and young adult during sermons. Why do I get to go to heaven? Cause I was born in rural Georgia and it was pressed upon me early that Jesus is the only way? What about people born into Hindu or Islam? What about them? It just didn't sit right with me spiritually. There had to be more. My father passed away to suicide in 2009, and amidst my shattered world, months later, the tides came rolling back in. Why am I here? Is life really only about being a consumer, working a nine to five and putting the cycle on repeat, and to teach my future children to do the same? That felt, and still feels, just wrong. Then came my researching in different religions, or more specifically, the origins of most religions. Visions, insights, miracles. How? Why? Why don't everyday people have visions anymore? Why don't people have experiences in the divine anymore? If civilizations were built on religion and the divine experiences, what is the point when there are no longer divine experiences? You can only read so much about God, but what is reading without having an experience? I realize how long-winded this post will be if I don't at least try and summarize. So yeah, after researching the aforementioned topics and learning that many of these visions and experiences of the divine were induced by psychoactive plants, it piqued my interest in psychedelics. The problem was, however, that I lived in a rural Georgia in a very religious Christian household. I didn't know who to ask as I had no contacts for DMT, LSD, or shrooms. Weed only made me want to go down the rabbit hole even more, and fueled my desire to experience something divine or otherworldly. Well shit, I think I found something, and it's legal. And it's been used for a very long time in South America, among the spiritual natives, Salvia Divinorum. I ordered some Salvia, and I knew enough about the breakthrough dilemma, and I already made it up in my mind I wanted that on the first try. I didn't want to start small, I didn't want to be in between. I wanted to go as far as I could. I ordered three grams of 20 times standardized extract and I bought a jet lighter and a water bong. Trip one, August 2010. I dimmed the lights in my house and had my cousin Trip sit, planning to alternate after I reintegrated with reality. I played the song Delirium, The Silence, Tiesto's In Search of Sunrise remix as loud as the TV could play it. I torched the fully packed bowl, keeping the jet flame on the bowl the entire time. I thought the smoke would be harsh judging by how the extract was burning, 
and the pale yellowish-white smoke was overtaking the bong chamber. But to my surprise, I inhaled almost the entire bowl. I told myself to count to 30. I made it to 12. The first thing I noticed was a straight-line pull of gravity, but it wasn't happening to my body. It was happening in my mind. My eyes rolled backwards, tracing the line of gravity as it was pulling me. It felt as though my eyes rolled so far back that I was entirely looking inward. In this place, I had no more body. I wasn't being pulled by gravity. I was gravity. I suddenly felt the presence of a being. It was an ancient feminine presence. She was holding me from behind, and I had the sense of being immature in her eyes, like I wasn't quite ready for this. But she will take and show me through this infinite anyways. I remember being suspended in vastness, being held by her, the entity, and she was connected to a rail of darkish light, or either she was the actual light rail, I'm not quite sure. I didn't feel like the rail was an inanimate object, she had a very powerful presence and was only being depicted as a rail of light perhaps. It's like I was shown the fallacy of believing a presence of any kind had to be tied to an animated body in order for it to be a real living entity. She took me on what I can only describe as a soul ride or a spirit ride through a dark ether, with occasional flashes or pixelations of very saturated color, almost cyberpunkish of sorts. We then came to a giant hand sprawled into a graceful clench-like stature, like someone gracefully holding a rose, but there was no rose. Instead, there was what I describe as a double helix of this dark light, and we zoomed in upon the top of it, and I saw our planet Earth. The message I got is how infinitely small we are in the vastness of everything. Sober-minded people have a hard time grasping the thought of timelessness, infinite, or a state of forever, but I felt like I was able to grasp it all at once. Then I suddenly started reintegrating with my body, with patchwork memories and flashes that are scrambled, and it would be like describing random images and flashcards being shown to me at a very fast rate. I can only describe so much in our limited language. As I started coming back to my body, I remember not knowing language. I knew what I wanted to say, but I didn't know how. Fast forward 20 minutes and my cousin, the trip sitter, said I kept mumbling how this life is only a blip and it doesn't come close to whatever is out there. Trip 2, three days after my first experience, I decided to give it another go. I could not get what I had experienced out of my mind. I wanted to experience something, even if it were a fraction of what went down three days ago. I was outside on our patio porch swing. The pattern of the swing cushions were solid white and green stripes. I put on my headphones and played the same song as in trip one, and began ingesting salvia in the same exact manner. I hunched over, my eyes nearly closed. I'm not sure if these were closed-eye visuals or not, but I'd like to think so. I felt that string of gravity pulling me from somewhere beyond. Again, the pull peaked as my eyes felt like they were following the trail behind the string, and it felt as if my eyes were looking inward again. Suddenly, like a tapestry covering all of my eyesight, all that overlaid my vision was the repeating vertical green and white stripes of the patio swing. Though seemingly cartoonish, and maybe what I perceived as slightly mechanical. Then, my periphery vanished as I zoomed in upon where the green and white stripes met. Suddenly, the stripes began to unzip where they met each other, and again, from behind, I was grabbed and pulled into the other side of the veil by her. This again was a soul-slash-spirit ride. 
Same rail of dark and light, but more color throughout the vastness between being shown as what I can only describe as other dimensions. Some of the memory is like quick flashes or snapshots of what seemed like a carnival slideshow and worlds of mechanical intricacy. Some memories are like a few seconds of a movie. At one point, guided by whatever was between me and the light rail, or either the light rail itself, I am not entirely sure. I have a very faint image of her embodiment, though I rarely saw it. Something close to a jester, fairy, and elf combination. Multicolored and patterned with utmost saturation of color hues. We swung into a solid gray covered box. Upon slamming into this box, she stayed on the outside of it, back in the ether vastness, and I head first plunged into this box while she held me from behind. There, I was inside of a grocery store in another world. It reminded me afterwards of some alien grocery store from Rick and Morty. I was what I perceived to be inside the refrigerated section, and cartons and boxes went flying below, where I saw a cartoonish green being. I hardly want to say alien, I don't want to say elf. I will just leave it at otherworldly. The character looked up towards where the boxes fell, and I got the impression she had witnessed something similar before, or as if this is a regular occurrence of sorts, seemingly unfazed. I suddenly was thrusted back into this reality, completely baffled by the journey. Time was weird, I feel like I had saw so much in such a short span of time, but my song had only been playing for nearly four minutes. My clothes felt abrasive as if my skin was ever so slightly sunburned. I felt a spot on my back that almost felt numb. I again felt like I was seemingly just between two worlds, and now I'm back in some biomechanical machine that houses whatever it is that I am in that other place. I was purely consciousness, perhaps? This is always the uncomfortable part with Salvi, it seems, reintegrating. Trip 3, November 2011 it had just been over a week since my father's two-year anniversary of departure from this life. I was really in emotional turmoil. I was experimenting with a host of prescription drugs and abusing them with alcohol. I was in a phase of blowing through the only thing my father left me with, a life insurance policy. I was throwing free-for-all parties and supplying alcohol and weed to whoever showed up. Fake friends and people who took advantage of me were a coin toss away. I was in a state of desperation, and the alcohol and pills weren't enough on this particular night. I'd stumbled upon a half-empty bag of salvia extract in a box where I recovered my old bong. I thought, fuck it, let's go someplace else other than here. I went outside, alone, and I went about it as the times before, minus the jet lighter. On this bricked ledge, I approached salvia with a mindset of, let's get really fucked up. I knew instantly this was not like the times before, and I had absolutely no business being wherever I was. From behind, as always, she was there, but I also felt the presence of lesser beings around as well. She was very angry and disappointed. I was told, not audibly, but telepathically, I never heard words audibly, I just felt thoughts and their meaning, that I would not be able to leave this place, which was, by all accounts, an empty void of blackness. All I felt was the sheer anger and disappointment from them, accompanied with a heavy gravity that was not like before where it had direction and purpose. It was just heavy and thick, and it was all-encompassing. I started to panic, and I just wanted to go back to wherever it is that I'm supposed to be, because it sure as fuck was not here. 
I pleaded, and I got the ultimate point that this world is not to be entered for purposes of mere recreation and entertainment, but to be respected and revered. I felt my outside desperation come into this world, only it was a hundredfold. I knew I would never be able to leave. Am I dead? Am I prisoner? What came before this? I don't care where it is. I just don't want to be here anymore. Please help me. I start to feel the gravity easing, and I bid farewell with the telepathic voice saying, Do not come back. The feeling of unwelcomeness was very apparent. Once I came back to about 15 minutes after, in a drunken stupor, I felt grateful to be alive, and I had an existential crisis where I started to re-examine my life. About a month later, I was completely clean, cold turkey. I started going to school with little direction as to what it was that I wanted to do. I went for a nursing degree, and long story short, no seriously, it didn't pan out after three years, so I decided to join the military. I did six years and had become a different person than I had ever been before, but once I got out, the tides came rolling back in. What is life? What is the meaning here? It feels like a dead-end world that we are all sleepwalking through. What is our true meaning as humans? After the military, I was on medication for anxiety and depression, and I started seeing all the articles as of late regarding the benefits of microdosing psychedelics. It's so much more accessible now. Let's give it a try. I relocated close to where there are legal dispensaries and got my hands on psilocybin mushrooms. I started microdosing three days on and three days off at 300 milligrams. After two weeks, I started to appreciate life more. I got off all of my medications and a strong drive for truth resurfaced in a way like never before. Some people call this, I suppose, a spiritual awakening. Two weeks ago, out of seemingly nowhere, I started thinking of Salvia, and by some miracle, looked past the last trip I had roughly 12 years ago. I felt a calling if I had to label it as something. Well, yesterday the package arrived from the same website as before all those years ago. My wife was interested as well, so I had ordered 2 grams of, again, 20 times extract. I had a bong, jet lighter, and my Salvia on hand. Trip 4, December 2023. I was nervous, understandably, though I had this overcoating feeling of, it's okay, I'll be fine, it will be good. The echoes of my last trip came to mind, do not come back, but I felt that message was intended for that immature, hurting, and callous person that was sitting on that bricked wall 12 years ago, not the man I am today. The call slash pull to partake overrode the fear of the unknown. I dimmed the lights, put in my AirPods playing Delirium, The Silence, Tiesto's In Search of Sunrise Remix, as I did in 2010, and I held the jet lighter until nothing was left in the bowl. Again, I counted to 30, and I only made it to 14 seconds. My wife sat on the edge of the bed as I closed my eyes. I started to feel the string of gravity pull me harder than ever before, my eyes turning inward. I instantly felt so welcomed, like seeing a distant, nearly estranged family member's house on the holidays. The smells, the layout, the entire climate being foreign yet memorable. I felt almost celebrated. I uneasily felt so at peace. I am in no danger, despite the intensity. I saw myself from above with my wife on the edge of the bed, the room as it was. I drifted outwards, being pulled by her. 
My mental image of the room I was in had frozen, and then as I zoomed outward into the ether, I saw the image, me, my wife, and the room start to be hushed away on a page of a book or a plated wheel. This book or wheel went on almost infinitely, and that moment in time was frozen and portrayed on the page within this book. As I zoomed out, I knew she and the smaller entities were behind me. This time, I noticed what I was. I was pure consciousness, and I was seemingly infinite. I was a dark pillar of light, same as the goddess behind me, same as the much smaller light rail from my first two trips. Her communication with me was, again, telepathic and completely understood. She imparted to me what I was looking at. I was looking at the page that was almost closing. I somehow managed to get a footing into the page so that it would not completely close. I did not want it to close because I knew it contained something I cared about within. I could hardly remember her face at this point, but I could not let her go. I could not let the page close. I heard other voices. The lessers were encouraging and almost even celebrating for me to turn around and face something behind me, something beyond comprehension. I had such an immense urge to turn and look, but it seemed my footing to keep the page bookmarked overrode that urge. Her voice took over that of the lessers. She imparted me to an extremely clear message. You want to know the true meaning of life, but you are holding on to memories. I then realized what this book was. Every page, every single page, was a life lived and a life to be lived. A life I have lived, and when I say I, I mean we, the readers of this and myself. I had the know, all that we are, all the same. We are a shared consciousness, and we are all drops, pages, in the same ocean, infinite book. I chose this life. I chose to experience this memory because of the one person I could not let go of. At this point, I can almost remember her face, but I certainly cannot remember her name. I wanted to remember her name. I focused, and my urge to look behind me at whatever spectacle was there was overridden with opening the page. As this pillar of consciousness, it was like I had an endless force or ability to experience any one of these pages I wanted to, but I chose this one. I wasn't a small part of me anymore. I saw all of me, and I was powerful beyond words. Are the other pages being experienced as I have experienced mine? Is it happening right now? Is another part of me living in another reality as is out of space and time experiences occurring? I feel like that is the case. She repeated again, memory. She repeated again, memory. But it wasn't spoken in three syllables. It was drawn out to the music I heard distantly in my mind. Wait, I knew this song. It felt like hours the word memory was slowly drawn out and spoken to me, the music getting louder. I slowly descended back into the book and into the page. By the time the word was finished being spoken to me, the frozen picture of my room was in full view. I was completely aware that I was in between worlds, dimensions, and frequencies. I do not have words to describe any of this. As I came to, I tried speaking, and I could not. The pool was lessening, and I knew I needed to tell my wife what I experienced. You're a memory, but I choose you. I try to say this to her incoherently. It was the most profound moment of my life. I could go on, but this is already way too long. Holy shit.
My younger brother got prescribed a bottle of codeine phosphate solution after he got his tonsils taken out, but my mother didn't give him any because she assumed he was too young to take it, being six at the time. I assumed, in my limited knowledge of painkillers at the time, that however much was contained in the large bottle, it must have been very diluted as it was for children. I started taking one to two 15 milliliter tablespoons in the morning before going to college, the prescribed dose being five milliliters four times a day. I had no awareness of how many milligrams I was taking. I found that it made me feel less cold in that particularly chilly December. Everything in college bothered me less, and I became less coordinated, in a fun way, similarly to the effects of alcohol, but more pleasant with less sickness. I did this every other morning for around two weeks, by which point I'd had half the bottle. I since calculated that I had relatively safe 100 milligram doses every morning. It came around the time of asking for Christmas presents, and I asked my mother for the rest of the codeine bottle, which my brother didn't need, nor her, along with some money for some other drugs I was more acquainted with. Until this point, codeine to me had been a totally harmless and solely pleasant drug. I guess I didn't put much time into research on this one, which isn't like me. It was a prescription for a six-year-old after all. The next day in college, I had to watch a very close friend of mine cry after talking on the phone to her boyfriend, who had very much upset her after a long line of turbulence in their relationship, and I could do nothing about it and just had to let her go home still in a bad mood. I know this is besides the point, but I feel I should give some background to the mood I was in that day. When I got home, I decided to take half of the remaining codeine, a quarter of the prescribed bottle, still unaware of how much actual codeine that amount contained. I knew it would be a rather large dose either way, and I hadn't eaten or drank that day, but in my saddened mood, and with my own life not going so great at that point anyway, I simply took my quarter, drinking it out of a glass this time, not bothering with measurements. An hour or so after I drank the quarter, I noticed no effects had kicked in at all. This was surprising to me, as the spoonfuls I had on all those previous days in college had kicked in within an hour at most, usually less than that. I decided in another stroke of carelessness to drink the rest of the bottle, putting my amount up to half of the bottle. Another hour passed, and I felt the effects kick in quite strongly, a bit too strongly for my liking. I measured my heart rate, and it was racing. Strange, since opioids are meant to decrease heart rate. I felt my breathing becoming heavier and heavier, and noticed that I couldn't feel my body any longer, and my breathing was getting frightfully dense. Nobody was in the house with me, my mother would come back within an hour at least, and until then, I knew I would have to handle this on my own. I stumbled up from my chair, noticing that lack of coordination from before quite drastically accentuated, and felt like a ghost, drifting slowly through my corridor to get the empty bottle I previously threw away. When I got back to my computer and sat down with the bottle in my hand, I noticed something a bit strange. Only an hour had gone by since I took the first quarter, not two as I'd thought. Time slowed down on the first go, and it felt as if an hour had passed, whilst in reality, most likely 30 minutes or so had. This was only a fleeting realization at this point, as my mind was in quite a rush panic at the thought that I may die at any time within the next hour. I read the bottle, it had the milliliter milligram ratio on it, 
I think it said something like every 5 milliliters contains 35 milligrams of codeine. I don't remember the exact figures, but instantly I could tell that I took a lot more than I intended to. I worked out on a calculator that I had, in fact, taken approximately 750 milligrams of codeine in one hour on an empty stomach and with a very low tolerance. It was at this point that the most overpowering wave of adrenaline surged through my body and I felt as if I was overtaken by an animal needing to survive. The experience was not, as some others have described codeine overdoses, a calm realization in one's mind that they may soon die. It was very much a panic, stronger than any panic I had ever felt before. My body handles most drugs very well. I've taken a bunch and have never thrown up or had any negative physical reactions, and my body weight isn't particularly low. However, at this point, I felt that the drug was quite quickly killing me. I considered walking quickly to the hospital 10 minutes away from my house, but realized this was pointless, as if I decided to take that 10 minute walk, I probably wouldn't survive it and would end up passed out or dead on the street halfway to the hospital. I knew I had to try and throw up as much as I could as quickly as possible. I knew that inside my stomach, there was only a small amount remaining of the dense, sticky pink liquid I drank, and that this would be very hard to throw up, even if I wanted to. I drank as much water as I possibly could, having about six glasses in about two minutes, and proceeded to induce vomiting using my fingers. I noticed this was particularly difficult, as the coating seemed to have suppressed my gag reflex almost fully. My fingers felt like they were just gently stroking the back of my tongue, almost as it does under MDMA, even though I was pressing and pulling quite hard. I got my toothbrush and inserted the handle end as far down my throat as I could, and tried purposely to tickle and irritate any area I could until I got results. It worked to an extent. My gag reflex was activated, but not quite enough to throw anything significant up. I did it a few times until I threw just enough up to feel a bit safer, then looked for people to talk to on MSN. By this point, my heart rate slowed down to almost normal levels, a falsely promising development, but I was still finding it very difficult to breathe. The panic, however, had subsided. There was only one person online at the time who I could talk to, and it was a new friend I recently made in college. I explained the situation to her and said I might die within the next hour or so, and if so, it was nice to have known her. She said that she had severe food poisoning once and had to throw up a lot and suggested that I use the brush end of a toothbrush to throw up more. She pressed on for me to try it and not particularly wanting to lose my life, I got up and tried it, still heavy and lightheaded at the same time. I put the brush end as far down my throat as I could, and eventually ended up throwing up a lot more than before. I repeated and repeated until no more could be thrown up, and I knew I'd done all I could. I came back to the computer and told her, and within a few minutes, I started to feel a bit better than before. Breathing became easier, only slightly but noticeably, and my heart rate had slowed down a bit. At this point, I noticed my heart was beating at less than one beat per second and that this may have been a point of concern, but I felt content with having thrown up quite a fair amount of the remaining codeine. I no longer felt like I was dying. 
My mother got home and I told her about it, and she gave me all kinds of talk about how stupid I was, and I told her that this really wasn't the time to argue with me, and that she could do it tomorrow. I thanked my friend for the help and said I'd talk to her later that night. I had a smoke and noticed every drag made me feel like I would faint, so I stopped and laid down on my bed and closed my eyes. At this point, any danger and all that could be done about it was pretty much unavoidable, so I spent three hours laying with my eyes closed, enjoying the rest of my experience as much as I could. I noticed two quite amazing things during these three hours. My heartbeat had slowed down at one point to one beat per three seconds, .33 beats per second. I didn't panic though, as I was quite well rested and not engaging in any physical activity of any sort. I just decided to keep track of it until it subsided and my mother checked in on me every half hour to make sure I was alive. The second thing I noticed was that when I closed my eyes and laid there feeling absolutely nothing physically, my mind would imagine scenarios, like dreams almost, where I would be totally immersed in the setting, walking, touching things, feeling things, thinking I was there, forgetting I was in a bed, and then I would snap out of it, open my eyes, and notice that my hands and legs had stayed totally still the entire time. This was by far the most interesting part of the experience, and the funniest. By 8 hours after I took my half bottle, the effects of the codeine were almost gone, though smoking was still difficult without feeling extremely lightheaded. I went to sleep, and for once, felt lucky to be alive, something that had never happened before. From this experience, I've learned to always research and measure what I am taking, no matter how harmless it may look or seem, and not to let my bad moods affect my judgment with drugs. And of course, to use the brush end of the toothbrush. My friend who recommended me the method of inducing vomiting probably saved my life that day, and yet knew nothing at all about drugs, being quite against them at the time. We're now in a long-term relationship, which is a bit surprising given the strange and worrying first week of friendship we had. I have since changed her attitudes on drugs, and I think she can learn from my example not to do anything stupid when messing with your mind or body. One last thing I learned from my first overdose was that I did value life. I spent my whole life before then thinking I hated it and wanted to live out only as much as I had to before something eventually killed me, being the depressed lonely teenager I was back then. However, this experience and that sheer terror that took over when I realized how much I had taken and that I actually realistically could be dead within one hour has proven to me that as much as one can talk about wanting to end his life, until you're faced with a chance to allow or prevent it, you cannot know whether you truly value life or not. In the majority of cases, I think, no matter how alone we feel, we still believe it can get better if we just keep going. Maybe. That's just me. This is by far the most intense Yahe ceremony I've been to this moment, and even if it's quite a while ago. I feel this is a kind of story that shows how a ceremony can get out of control and be very dangerous for the whole group. To the day where the event took place, I had had four years of experience with many ayahuasca ceremonies, but none of them could prepare me for this one. 
The main reason why I went to this ceremony is because I wanted to clear a dispute I had with a good friend. I'll call him D. He is also known for all the ceremonies and events he organizes around the area I've lived at this time. Inviting tribes from Brazil, experienced medicine people from Europe, and Taitas, healer level, from Colombia, like in this ceremony. The Colombian Taita to this day is acknowledged worldwide, but I'm sure that he had not experienced a ceremony like this either. But thinking about that reminds me that he had mentioned a ceremony in which someone at some point attacked him with a machete and almost killed him because he thought he was the devil. So after thinking a long time about going, I finally decided to go and clear my friendship with D. Also, I'd like to get to know the Taita who's about to come and experience the ceremony in Spanish, my second native language, which I had not experienced for a long time. With a very mixed weird mental and emotional sense of self, like always before ceremony in my case, I am going on a one hour drive to my friend's little house next to a forest. I am one of the first ones arriving at my friend's place in the evening, and after giving Dee a good old friend hug, I get to know the Taita and his friend who's helping guide the ceremony. God bless him forever, you'll see later why. The Taita is a very young guy, which surprises me, but I felt that he had a lot of experience. We are eight people in the first night in a little garden house, so little that we perfectly fit in, two guys on each side. I am in front of the Taita, and his helper and I will be translating the whole two nights, which was a nice task to train my memory and other mental abilities. On the right wall sits D, and another friend we'll call J. On my left sits a friend called E, and on the left wall are sitting two women. Introducing the first night ceremony, the Taita mentions how strong and long cooked his medicine is, six day reducing procedure, normally like two to three days, and that on one occasion, they had to tighten a wild gone guy to a tree because of the strong effects. This little information already bothered me a bit, but I thought everything was going to be alright. As the Taita serves the first cup to a woman, almost as much volume as a coffee mug, I am even more bothered about how this will end. The woman refused to drink it at all, which the Taita was not happy about and tried to convince her. I cannot remember perfectly if she drank all of it or not, but at some point, it was my turn. I drink it all and feel almost immediately some little effects. I feel that this medicine is way more powerful than I have experienced before. The first night was pretty calm. Incredible open and closed eye visuals. Beautiful stories from the Taita from the Colombian indigenous tribes, and a lot of music in which I also took a part with guitar. There were some hardcore confusing moments, but this was still something I could handle. Dee and I could clean some things between us, but there was still some stuff to look at. This night, almost everyone drank two cups. I'm sure everyone enjoyed this night very much, and I will not go into more details, because a really intense night is the next one. The next day, everyone is happy and talking about their experiences. The Taita and I became very connected, and I'm also very good with the helper. I'll name him R. We have really nice conversations before the next ceremony. So the second night is always stronger than the first one, because the after effects of the medicine last some more days. Before we began, another participant came to us. After a little talk, we started, and the same huge cups were served to the group as the day before. In the force of the first cup, everything was still okay, but I felt with one more, it would be a pretty dangerous thing. 
We talked a lot and made music. I really enjoyed the stories of the Taita and the vibe of the group. Three hours later, the Taita initiated the second cup round. Nobody really wanted to have another, but the Taita said that we should not deny the medicine out of fear, which sounded right at the moment. So this night, everyone took the second cup. In the beginning, everything felt under control, and I freestyled on the guitar like never before. At some moment, the medicine grew stronger and stronger and stronger. I did not know to which level this was going. My friend Dia and I started to communicate telepathically, and then I came over to him. This was the deepest feeling of forgiveness I have ever felt. Both of us were in the same position forgiving each other. I went back to my place and tried to center myself. Trying to get my head straight, I start to hear hesitating noises. D stood up and is completely naked. The Titan helper tried to calm him down and asked him to dress up again. I felt that D was totally out of it and I got worried. At least they could make him put his pants back on, but the vibes remained with him. He was still standing when he rapidly headed to an open oven with a fire inside. The helper could drag him away and D stopped trying this. After almost burning his head, D went outside and the Titan helper followed fast. I felt also responsible and came after them finding them next to the outdoor kitchen when D headed towards me with the most frightening vibe I have ever felt. I could barely handle his view in my eyes, but I knew that I was holding him in that moment. Everything around us was standing still. Time went crazy. He asked me then to do a blood brother ceremony and wanted to get a knife. I tried to calm him down because having him have a knife in his hand was the last thing I wanted in his mental state. I could not get him off his idea and try to reverse the situation by allowing him to take a knife with the intention to take it in a relaxed way from him. He ran three steps to the kitchen to get a knife while the guides were trying to stop him. The medicine's effects were still getting stronger to the level I could not handle the moment anymore. The next thing I see when I get back to Earth is D trying to cut his throat with a knife already in his flesh and the helper hooking his own t-shirt over his throat to make a deeper cut not possible. In this moment, D looked like he hung himself with a t-shirt, his face total white and without life. The most shocking moment of my life to this day. The helper was able to save D from suicide, and thanks to him, D only got a little cut in the left side of his throat, but his shirt had a certain amount of his blood all over. It did not bleed more, thank God. After this, everyone went inside again. The other five participants stayed inside during all the craziness outside. Six hours in, and the vibes were still heavy, and no one knew really how this ceremony will continue. If you think the medicine was now wearing off, you were very wrong. It was incredibly hard for me to focus myself to the point I totally lost it. I lay on my back and went to a universe where nothing matters anymore. No age, no title, no situation, really nothing. Not even the worst moment of my life some minutes ago. I started to laugh really hard at anything I took so serious in my life without end. Everyone was just listening to me. At one moment, the Taita started to play a song, but I interrupted him with stupid movements and sounds I know from another crazy friend. For me, it was pretty funny, but I'm sure not for the others. 
I never felt so free in my life like in this moment. Reminding me of D, I started to laugh very hard again. I insulted him how stupid he was and that he should suck my dick. This is really a record night for me in many ways. This was also the most embarrassing moment in my life. Talking to D like this after he almost killed himself, but there was really nothing I could take for serious anymore. It was beyond insanity, but a state of consciousness I had the chance to learn a lot from. Time was standing completely still. I had my eyes open and I felt like I was flying in the universe, floating in existence itself. Infinity felt incredibly beautiful and all weight I ever had went off my shoulders, a feeling way beyond being able to describe in words, a whole different reality. I thought that I had transcended, I will be in this realm forever and accepted this. 10 hours in, out of nothing, I wake up laying on my side, opening my eyes and realizing that I'm still tripping balls. The timeless dimension went away, but even after sleeping some hours, I needed a lot of effort to stay at least kind of stable. I realized everything that happened some hours ago and couldn't and didn't want to believe it was all real. Fuck. As I tried to sit up straight, Jay said pretty sarcastically, my observation, Good morning. I was not sure how to handle all this. I looked around and everyone looked pretty weird and stressed. I just prayed to God it was not because of me. The vibes were still very intense and not relaxed at all, and I am still frying hard. It felt like D could go crazy at any moment again. Everyone felt this. D started to complain that no one took care of the water and that no one helped him with tidying the things inside his little house. I could not believe what he was saying after all. He started to guilt the Taita for what happened and mentioned the other ceremony the Taita was planning later at the house, but in some months. D was the only one putting his finger upwards with a smile full of craziness. The vibes were unbearable. One of the two women started to put D in his place and said that he had the responsibility for himself. The Taita tried also to explain himself, but D was in his rage where nothing enters his consciousness. The Taita looked very weak, maybe because he drank three cups last night to try to handle me, he told me later. There was a vegetarian chili ready to eat, but no one was hungry. Everyone felt uncomfortable and wanted to leave. The Taita and his helper left first. We all helped to clean the house to leave it nice. I heard D saying in one moment while we were cleaning that he would end it after every participant is gone. This sounded like he just wanted to be heard, so after some time we were all ready and people were leaving. I had been with D to the end and told him that I'll be there for him with whatever happens. After some minutes, I took my stuff and drove home. D did not kill himself afterwards and he's good to this day as I'm writing this. I met him some weeks later and was seriously bothered about the encounter. I imagined him pointing a gun at me but this was luckily not the case. He said that he felt that I was manipulating him during the ceremony and gave me the guilt for his actions. I couldn't take this seriously and told him my viewpoint of all that happened. It was a short meeting and I left to go back home. From that day until now, we're more like guys who know each other.
I had always heard horror stories about psychedelics, but based on my experiences with them, I had always assumed that these were either highly exaggerated or just plain false until I lived through one last Saturday. To start with some background, I am an 18 year old male with a fair amount of experience with psychedelics. Sometime in April, I acquired 50 tabs of 25C NBOME at a dose of 1000 micrograms through the Silk Road. Between then and last Friday, I had used those tabs on five separate occasions with five different people, and they had all proved to be thoroughly enjoyable experiences. For those of you that don't know, 25C NBUME is a hallucinogenic drug with effects somewhat similar to LSD. My mom was going to be out of town for the weekend, so I decided to have some friends over on Saturday, June 14th to hang out and trip. Three people besides me were there, and for the sake of anonymity, I will be using fake names. First was my girlfriend, who we will call Christy, who had tripped twice before this. Next was my closest friend, who we will call Carl, who had tripped four to five times before this. And last was a good but not super close friend, who we will call X, who claimed he had previous experience. They all came over around 11am, and we just started off by smoking a few bowls and talking till about noon, when we decided to take the tabs. Everyone present took one tab sublingually, and held it in for approximately 45 minutes to an hour. X made remarks of feeling it as quickly as 20 minutes in, when it usually takes me 45 minutes to an hour to feel any effects. To start, we were all laying on a couch listening to music and watching a light show on my ceiling. Up until about an hour and 20 minutes in, X was enjoying himself very much, commenting on how good his body felt and how much he liked the music. At around an hour and 20 minutes in, Christy and I decided to eat Warheads as the extreme sour is very intense and fun while tripping. We offered one to X, which noticeably freaked him out and confused him. We told him he didn't have to eat one if he didn't want to, and I went to sit down when X suddenly got up and began hurrying up the stairs. I asked him where he was going, to which he replied, Are you guys fucking with me? Is it cool? Neither Carl, Christy, or I had any idea what he was talking about, but we asked him to sit back down, which he did. At this point, I decided to turn the music off and began asking if he was okay. X didn't really respond to my questions. He was looking in my direction, but not at my face, and he began having a conversation with me about how he always felt that we were connected in some way. I was confused and did not respond, but he kept going as if I had. It began to bother me, as it was almost as if he was talking to a non-existent person right behind me. I decided at this point that I better ask for his keys and phone. He gave up the keys with no trouble, but getting his phone was a bit of a struggle. This is when I knew things were definitely bad. After I had his keys and Christy had taken his phone, he kept babbling about not wanting to go all the way and not wanting to make any deals and nonsensical cryptic things like that. Eventually, he ended up calling us the Cosmic Four, which at first we all laughed at as we figured he was joking, but then we realized he really believed we were some sort of super team. He assigned various attributes to all of us and began talking about things we had been through that had never actually happened. As this went on, we continuously tried to get him to focus and remember real things, but it was to no avail. 
As he went on, his ramblings became less and less sensical. He kept referring to himself as Father Reason and talked about how he always brought the balance. He was talking to us as if he thought we were all aspects of his personality inside his head. Then his strange stories adopted an odd religious vibe. X referred to different areas of my basement as heaven and hell, my dog as Lucifer, and my dog's ball as the Apple of Eden, and Christy as Eve. He also began referring to the six people in the room when there were only four. He also began referring to Carl as Ares and thought the house was full of the personifications of lust, debauchery, greed, and other things like that. Throughout all these talks, we kept trying to get him focused on reality and reminding him he had taken the drug. He stayed strangely grounded to reality and able to remember real things, but he would never focus on them long. After about two hours, we gave up on talking him down, and I decided to attempt to divert his attention. First, I asked if he wanted to play Call of Duty, to which he replied, Come on guys, we always do that. This was the first time the four of us had hung out. So then I tried watching Adventure Time, which I knew was a favorite show of his. When I asked if he had a specific episode he wanted to watch, he responded as if the numbers had something to do with how the future would turn out. Eventually, I just picked a random one. While it was playing, both Christy and Carl used the bathroom at different times, and their movements seemed to freak X out. He kept talking over the show about how we were bringing on a new age, and how we needed to discuss what we were going to do differently this time. It was such stereotypical Illuminati type stuff that I swore for a while he was fucking with us. After two episodes, I had to take my dog out to go to the bathroom, and this is where shit really hit the fan. When I came back, X asked why everyone but him could go upstairs, and I explained that if he had to go to the bathroom, I'd go up with him just to make sure he didn't break anything. After I explained that, he began yelling that he wasn't making any fucking deals, and Christy and Carl said it looked like he was about to punch me. I told him I wasn't trying to make any deals, and we began to head upstairs. At 4.07, as soon as we got to the top, X bolted for the door, tried to throw it open, found it locked, frantically unlocked it, threw it open, and ran down my street yelling, HELP ME! at the top of his lungs. Mind you, we are in a residential neighborhood in broad daylight. Holy fuck, I had to get my dog inside as he ran outside, and then Christy, Carl, and I freaked the fuck out. We began thinking of every possible thing we could do, then eventually called X's friends, who we will call Sam and Jack, who agreed to drive up and come look for him. They got to my house, we explained the situation, and they drove around looking for him to no avail. They came back to my house for a bit, but became nervous when a large group of people were standing in the street outside my house and decided to leave. The people were evidently just talking as they eventually left. At this point, three hours had passed since he left without his shoes, phone, or keys, and we had no idea what to do. Then my phone rang. It was my friend who works at the fire department. He worriedly asked if I was okay, and I told him I was, and he explained that he was with X, who had gotten the police called on him numerous times and had been found in his boxer somewhere in the woods. X told the cops that he thought that he had OD'd, and the cops had taken him in for testing, 
and after his vitals came back okay, they took him home as the drug was almost out of his system. He evidently didn't give the cops any names or addresses, and I'm so grateful he ended up okay. We drove his car to a parking lot close to my house and let him know all of his stuff was in it. I have not spoken with him since then, so I do not yet have a side of exactly what happened. I guess what to take from all this is while I'm the last person to tell you not to do hallucinogenic drugs, just keep in mind that this stuff evidently really does happen, and to be careful, especially with research chemicals. <laughs>